0: morning, everybody. Good to be in. Good to be in Austin. Good to be at Austin New Church. I. Uh, I've been talking to Jason. I, of course, I listened to the sermons, all the great sermons out of here, um, the last few weeks. So I know where you guys are, and I know how to jump right in. But Jason, I've been talking. Specifically about uh, the the sermon series, and specifically he and I have been talking just from a professional perspective, personal perspective, and a church perspective about the traumas we endure, and the traumas that we heal from, and the traumas that we even redeem, those wounds that we redeem, um, remembering that by His wounds we are healed, that Wounds can either become these festering, gangrenous things that lead to amputation and death and destroy us, or wounds can be redeemed and actually be the tender places of our life that doubters like Thomas can slip their finger to and say, oh, and find relief there. Wounds can be redeemed. Traumas and wounds can be that thing that makes Paul say, to the church at Corinth that he was so desperately trying to justify his position with. Knowing his long resume and litany of spiritual accomplishments, Paul begins his ultimate defense by pulling back his robe and saying, I I don't want you to be ignorant or unaware of the trouble that's come to me in my life. I've despaired of life at times. I've despaired of life so much so that that phrase in the Greek, really, at first it sounds like he's saying, things got so bad I thought I was going to die, but it's worse. He said, things then got worse and I was afraid that I wouldn't. I despaired of life. But he said, I, I've been greatly wounded or greatly afflicted that I might be greatly comforted, that I might comfort others with the comfort wherewith God has comforted me. So we become stewards of our pain, we become stewards of our wounds. We don't lick them and fall into this abyss of victimization. That thing Emily Dickinson said in her poem, A Great Hope Fell, the wound grew so large until my whole life fell into it. But we redeem them, the wounds close and they become healing balm and that that IV that opened us up to bitterness and anger and woe somehow is redeemed and flipped and it becomes a funnel that opens us to a dimension of divine grace that we would have never known and a level of sensitivity and equanimity with others that we would have never come to on our own. So we've been talking, you guys have been talking about trauma and and specifically Jason thought it would be nice to throw me the the easy subject of church trauma. (laughs) Religious trauma. And and I I think it's important when we talk about things like this. It's, It's funny, whenever we do a sermon on forgiveness, the assumption is we're just all trying to figure out how to forgive all those jerks. Not realizing that we are those jerks. And that a sermon on forgiveness should be as much about how desperately we need to be forgiven by others as much as we need to forgive them. We have wounded and been wounded. We have hurt and been hurt. We're all in this together. And so when when I, when I think about church wounding, I think about my own, and then I think also about those that I've caused, those that I don't know that I've caused. But So I wrote a mea culpa. I am not a pope. A district superintendent or a bishop but I wrote a bit of a mea culpa and I'm going to read it to you this morning and see if it resonates and makes sense because I'd like to get this right and these words are tender words and they could be misunderstood exaggerated in voice and hearing so I want to be careful see if this works None of us live or leave life unscathed, unharmed, unwounded. Disappointments, loss, sadness, inescapable. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. No one is exempt. No pedigree, no stature, no amount of money provides immunity. I've met a lot of bitter people. In the work that I do, I've met a lot of bitter people. And yet, that superlative is wrong because I don't think they're really bitter people. I think they're experiencing bitterness because bitterness is simply anger that has not found resolve. So I've met a lot of angry people, and yet anger doesn't fit because beneath the anger, these people are deeply beautiful, but they are angry. And as you dig down, you find out that angerness our anger, rather, is sadness that's unresolved. If sadness goes unresolved, it infects to anger. If anger goes unresolved, it infects to bitterness. But when you dig down under the sadness, beneath that in the substrate, there's disappointment. When disappointment is unresolved, when disappointment loses hope that it can be resolved, it becomes sadness. Despair. And disappointment is simply that, that space that exists. It's pretty simple between our expectations and our reality. If I expect relationally, if I expect this from you and I'm getting this, then that's the that's the measure of my disappointment. If I expect this and I'm getting this, I have a little disappointment. If I expect this and get this, I'm thrilled. So there's there's this tension of how do we resolve disappointment? Well, we can either lower our expectations or bring our reality up. And when, as so many disappointments are, disappointments are generated relationally, there's two or three or four more people having to barter what is a reasonable expectation. What actually is the reality? I've met a lot of bitter Angry, sad, disappointed people. But I also know that in that lament, in the, the sorrow of disappointment, in lament there is love song. Nicholas Wolterstorff said that after the loss of his 25-year-old son. Lament is love song. Walter Storff said, at some point I came to realize that grief is living testimony to the worth of that which has been lost. Today's joy is inescapably tomorrow's sorrow. The happiness now is the source of the suffering then. Today's tears were made by yesterday's laughter. Lament is love song. Disappointment. Is, is somehow beautiful, bittersweet, and that it points with yearning to something that we cannot in our mind let go of and our hearts quit hoping for. And our children lay over old dogs. Our children wrestle in veterinary clinics with precious cats who've run their race and been there the kids' whole life. And our children cry, and in lament is love song. They cry in the days following and say, I don't ever want another dog, Daddy. I can't have my little 13-year-old heart broken that way again. But within a few months, we're coming back with a new pile of fluff from the pound that creates piles. Because lament is love song. And in the tears, you go far enough east, you end up west. And you go far enough west, and you end up east. The measure, the amount of tears we cry is the measure of the love we've known. Tears are not the disappearing of love. Tears are not the disappearing of that joy. To the contrary, they are the dissolving of that love. Dissolving is not disappearing. Tears are the melting of something that once was so solid and sure we never thought that it could change. Tears are the dissolving and the melting of those things that we never thought we would have to let go of. But the liquid tears are the same substance as the solid joy. Sad tears are only happy laughter just in a different form. No, no. None of us leave unscathed. And if it's true that the height of the mountain is the measure of the valley's depth, then it stands to reason that the highest mountains in our life create the deepest valleys. And the deepest valleys are simply different perspectives on the highest mountains, but the same landscape, the same soil. Our greatest sorrows are born of our greatest loves. Our greatest disappointments are born of our highest hopes. And this is what I wanted to say in the mea culpa. Those parts, those people, those portions, those places of our lives that we naturally esteem most important, most central, most intimate, most reliable. These are the parts of our lives that hold the most potential to break our hearts. These things that we hold so core to our souls that we depend upon for life that we believe most deeply in, these are those things that carry the capacity to wound us most deeply. For these are the parts of our lives that promise us the most. And there are a few of those in my life and in the lives of the people that I've been privileged to serve. There are a few of those that I have watched break us most deeply and hurt us most viciously. Parents. Family. <laughs> to to know that the work that I do. See, I, I I tear I'm 54 forgive the arkansas I'm 54 gum years old and for my dad to tell me he's disappointed in me because I'm trying to stand up for what I believe in see this so my walk up to me on the street 99% of people walk up and say that So? But an old man sitting in a chair that I know, I know is sincere. And I know he quit reading the books. And I kept reading the books. And I know I'm on his shoulders. But for him to say, boy, your life hasn't turned out the way your mother and I thought it would. (laughs) God. Parents, family, spouse, romantic partner, teachers, educational systems. God, when a teacher hurts a child. (sighs) Justice systems. I know we're all a little raw there, but we still expect and hope something beneath that Bandana of blindness, we we hope beneath the gavel and those black robes that there's something that we can still rely on, don't we? Family, church, teachers, justice systems, to varying degrees, we hold a few of life's institutions to a high standard of expectation, to a lofty ideal that we know Maybe we could just resolve the disappointment and the bitterness and all the wounds right now by just giving up on the expectation and lowering the reality and saying, forget it. And lots have. The reason, there's a reason some of our kids say, I ain't never getting married, Dad. I'm not ever going to have children. You going to be a preacher too? Are you kidding me? To varying degrees, we hold a few of life's institutions to a high standard of expectation, a lofty ideal that we intuitively, some of us, have just decided we can't give up on. Helpless romantics? Illusory idealist? I don't think so. I think it's right that we hold these ideals. I, for one, am not for the letting go of these good longings, these righteous hopes. And I'm speaking about the church today specifically. I, I, I don't, my old pastor, great mentor, used to tell me, Stan, if you don't want to be disillusioned, don't get illusioned. And that's the truth. But I want to tell you, you can take that to a hard-bitten far end. And say that the absence of illusion is the same as cynicism and a caustic, sarcastic spirit that just crumples itself across the finish line, saying, Well, I've seen too much. Poets, the prisoner snarled. Poets, he whispered to Cervantes, you run people's lives by setting their palate for things impossible. To which Cervantes said, maybe, maybe I do. But I've seen men take their last breath hundreds of miles from their mothers and children. And I've seen them relying as the blood bleeds from their body. I've seen them relying on another blood, another source of life. A hope that there could be something even beyond the bullets and the swords. There could be something more than this battlefield bloodied by their life. Poets, the man snarled, they rob people of life. Cervantes said, perhaps it is in the madness that they suspend before the human heart that there is the greatest sanity. I, I don't want children fired into a world as cynics, intuitively rejecting their mother's breast for fear of her betrayal, even though many have betrayed from that breast. I... I don't want a world where citizens walk into courtrooms and police police stations scoffing and expecting the worst. I don't want a school where students live dubiously toward teachers' instruction. And I don't want synagogues and temples and churches where worshipers walk suspiciously, pessimistically into those spaces, looking around warily instead of up wondrously. I am with Lincoln who famously said I would rather be fooled a hundred times than ever develop the cold heart of a cynic. Per the church, per the woundings wrought by religion, per the woundings wrought by people like me, per the disappointments and destructions done within walls like these. I am in church today. And I think I would be here, as best I can tell, if I weren't the one under the lights. And I am not here wet behind the ears. I am here with a genetic memory of many generations in the church, many generations of ministers. But I'm also here on the heels of 38 and a half years of professional pastoral ministry. 38 and a half years freighted. Freighted with my own failures as well as the failures of others, a tangled snarl that scarcely could the divine hand tease out. And I will tell you, beneath this robe of clerical ordination, down at its base, down at the substrate, are clay feet. In Susan Howitch's novels that were life-changing for me, glittering images and ultimate prizes. One of her protagonists, a man named Richard Holloway, was a bishop in the Scottish Episcopal Church. And in the book, the protagonist Holloway, the priest comments about this very issue. Speaking of human frailty and the clay feet of people like me and the clay feet of structures like this. Structures that promise so much. Holloway said, professional Christians, church leaders, or preachers, at some point become terribly aware that they are walking contradictions. We are licensed frauds. On the one hand, as public figures, we represent the Christian message. And we take this seriously but somehow, in that po- process, people project onto us their own expectations and longings. And yet, beneath those projections, those longings, those expectations, behind our collars, we know that we are, in fact, not anything like the stained glass window that some people imagine us to be, want us to be, or think we ought to be. Perish the thought, certainly perish the testimony. The truth remains that inside we are just as full of doubts, fears, anxieties, lusts, longings as everyone else. How easy it is for others to assume that my admiration of an ideal implies a special ability to conform to it. Experience suggests that it might be the exact opposite. Experience suggests that in this is much autotherapy. And perhaps it is the most broken who aspire to the ideal for their own repair. Experience suggests that many of the ideals that people like me most admire lie beyond us and cannot be achieved by our frail and fallen human nature, at least not as perfectly as supposed. So here we are ever again in the middle of all this confusion, knowing how inappropriate we are as vessels of God's disclosure, and yet also knowing that in all sorts of ways that is precisely what we are. God does use these frauds, these very flawed and confused creatures, to address, comfort, challenge, and console people. Back we come, again, to the ambiguity, the ambivalence. We are still very much flesh, blood, and galloping neurosis, yet through all that, God reaches people. And I stand on these very clay feet with eyes wide open, fully aware of not only the beauty I have experienced, I stand on these clay feet, recognizing and admitting today the laughter, the joy, The peace, the goodness, the transformation I have witnessed beneath steeples like these. It's what keeps bringing me back. I am aware, not only though, of these lovely things, but I am also aware of the grave failures, the devastating disappointments, the grievous woundings that have happened here beneath these steeples. Suffering and sorrow compounded by the fact that these things occurred within the confines of a place, a place an institution from which people expected so much more. There is no escaping the weight of this, the gravity, the force, the pathos. You hear it in Jesus' lament in Luke 11. You teachers are in grave trouble, he said to people like me. You're in trouble if you load people down with heavy religious burdens. Burdens impossible to bear. And then when they collapse under those burdens, you don't lift a finger to help them carry the loads. You carry the keys to the door of knowledge about God. But not only do you not go in, you keep others from going in. In Matthew 18, Jesus Channeling the same idea said, if any of you cause one of my little ones, vulnerable human beings who believe in me to sin, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to those who cause people to stumble and sin. And then, channeling my old pastor, Jesus said, such things are bound to come because people are people, but woe to the one. whom they come. To cause people to stumble, to cause people to sin, Jesus said, how in the world, why in the world, who in the world would knowingly cause people to stumble to sin, to break, to collapse beneath an unbearable load, a religious load? Religious wounding. Who in the world would knowingly create suffering wrought in the very place that promised solace, succor, safety, salvation, even? Interestingly, the Bible starts with a wise warning of just how a place that promises the heavens has the capacity to deliver a hell. The Bible's first story is a story of a fall, but not just any fall in any place. But a fall that happened in a perfect garden called Eden that promised so much. A place maybe due to the height of that promise that yielded a valley so low. A valley that we live in east of Eden. A valley in which we all take our sojourn. Jesus must have remembered that first sin. A sin that was not caused by a woman But the woman being the little one, the man with her being the little one caused to sin. Jesus must have remembered the serpent who slithered into the garden. Who led these two to their sin. How did he do it? And this is where my work comes to mind. The work that I am able to do advocating and working on behalf of my queer brothers and sisters. The serpent came to Eve, and the serpent did not say, you see that fruit? You should eat it. You'll live like you've never lived. The serpent came to Eve and said, don't look at the fruit. Look at God. And she looked to God, and the serpent said, I want to ask you something about God. What did God tell you about that tree? And the woman said, God told me not to eat of that tree or I would die. Still not turning the attention to the tree, keeping the attention on God, keeping the attention on her and the relationship she had with God. The serpent looks at Eve and says, and you believed that? To which the woman essentially responds, shouldn't I? To which the serpent responds, and for the first time, the woman cast a wary eye toward God, and the serpent preaches the first sermon of the anti-gospel. The serpent said, you have assumed union with God You have assumed a safe relationship with God that is not true. You do not have union with God, and I want to tell you who you are. You are someone worth only being lied to. You are someone who deserves nothing more than manipulation and selfish hoarding promoted as relationship. The serpent did not set out that day to change her mind about the fruit first. The serpent set out that day to change her mind about God, but even more about herself. Because the serpent really didn't change her mind about God except that God would lie to her. But the serpent did not change her mind about God being the ideal. Oh, and I start to relate here. Because the serpent didn't stand up then and say, since God is such an ogre and liar, eat that fruit and you'll be like me. The serpent, knowing that her heart still held the ideal of God, the serpent said, but if you do want to be like God, anybody remember? She was made in the likeness of God. And the serpent removed her idea of inherent union with God and said, you are inherently separated from God and not worth being told the truth. But if you do want to be like God, you can eat that fruit. Eve did not eat the fruit to be like the devil. She ate the fruit because she wanted to be like God. Eve's sin was our sin. Sin, by Eve's definition, was to steal something that you already possess and the reason Eve stole the fruit is because she still wanted to be like God Eve did not lose her estimation high estimation of God she lost her estimation of herself and said this is what I deserve could it be That the first 2,000 years of the Christian church, we have not been channeling the divine, we have been channeling the serpent. By telling people you are inherently separated from God and not like God. But if you will do these things, good and evil and knowledge and righteousness and all that being involved. You can be like God. Sin is the effort to steal something that you already have. I live with a group of people who have been told by the church you inherently are broken and you must have this repaired. This good-evil proposition plays out specifically in your sexuality, and if that is repaired, then you can also be like God. And we are not telling them this for some arbitrary reason to do with their left hand or the color of their eye. We're telling 11-year-old children that this thing that makes them separate from God and intrinsically other than God that makes them worth only being lied to And mistreated by the church, this thing that we're telling the 11-year-old child that merits all of these demerits is actually one of the two or three most lovely parts of their life. It is the way they might be able to connect with another human being to love so deeply It might be one of the highest mountains in the inscape of their soul. And we have told them. Jesus said, whoa. Today, time fails to speak of all of the elders and preachers who have messed around and done stupid, wrong things. At the very foundation of the Christian church. Telling human beings. That they are inherently separate and they have to go through a process of good and evil righteousness requisition to become like God telling them that they have to take a journey to become a child of God instead of recognizing that the gospel is not that we must become something other than we are. It is the prodigal circuitous journey to come home to whom we we have always been. It is the elder brother's hearing, son, you have always been with me. You thought you were slaving, but everything I've ever had is yours. It might be at the foundation of the Christian church we have laid in our first 2,000 years a grave wounding that then replicates itself in women and people of color and every minority, every minority that can somehow be marginalized and scapegoated to take the brunt of our own shame and pain. The majority finds those that are weaker, lay our hands on them and say, run, goat, run. But they are not taking their homosexuality into the The woods, they are taking our own shame beneath our collars. It was Mark Nepo, the great Mark Nepo, who told the story. In his book, Finding Inner Courage, Mark Nepo tells the story of a young Guatemalan child. Her name not remembered her name, he said, among the angels, if not on earth. Surely in heaven, NiPO whispered in writing, perhaps her name was Eve. She lived in the jungles of Guatemala, somewhere in this time we live in. Her life, her testimony was reported by a faithful member of an NGO, She was one of many, too many. She was an orphan of war. Her story took place in Guatemala. Her parents were killed and her brother lost in retaliation. Three years later, this little girl, almost starved, nine or 10, was found by a worker. And when they found her, she was quietly, through her tears, pulling the wings off of a butterfly. With each tearing, she whispered through tears, Pobrecita, Pobrecita, poor, poor little one. Nipo said, the image has haunted me. The image has haunted me, for in her innocence and pain, she revealed and relived the knot of our struggle as human beings. And that is this. What we don't face as our own we perpetrate on others. Those wounds that are not transformed, those wounds eventually will be transmitted. I cannot blame this little one for the tearing of the butterfly. She was just a tiny angel sent to remind all of us. Her story has worked on me. The struggle she enacted for us all she, of course, was the poor little one whose young, her, whose young wings had been torn. She, of course, was the poor little butterfly whose wings had been torn. And carrying a pain too big for her small heart, she was, I think, trying to alleviate her pain by acting out her wound on something else. This to me is the source of much of the pain we cause in this life. So in thirty-eight and a half years, <clears throat> the tearing of wings that I have performed, the Ron Baldwins and the Larry Kirks and the Antonio Comptons, those poor queer people that struggled down out of the loft of that large church as a young pastor that I preached and came to my office, those wounded, torn butterflies. Little did they know that that young man pastoring 8,000 people, standing up in front of 4,000 people, had a marriage in such disrepair, a soul so desperately wounded, the one who wept Pobresita as it tore them asunder. He was raised in an intensely fundamentalist and fear-based branch of Christianity. Very early he came to believe that he was irrevocably broken, that he was not, nor would he ever be, enough. I came to believe that God was justifiably angry, and accordingly a judgment day was looming dangerously near By second grade, I missed 30 days of school for fear of a rapture that was to take place. A spastic colon raged my body as I bit my fingernails to the quick. Sadly, any of the terrible ideas that I was taught about God independent of the others held the capacity to rob that little boy of my life almost before it had begun. Mixed together, their impact was nothing less than psychological terrorism. And so having swallowed hook, line, and sinker, the religiously abusive tandem of personal insufficiency and separation from God, I contracted the reciprocal illness of shame and estrangement. And worse yet, I could not find in the institution the church that had poisoned me an antidote for that poison. Every service I ran to the altar of that little Pentecostal church, I was like a person who had gone to a hospital looking for healing only to contract from the halls an even worse infection. I went with pneumonia and almost died of sepsis. That type of religious experience is not dissimilar to the experience of children brought up in a home ravaged by addiction and or mental illness. In that type of familial system, the child's most basic needs go unmet. Compounding the sad impact of that deficit is the fact that it occurred in the very place that was supposed to be the safest of all, the family, the home. The dysfunctional inconsistency experienced by the little one in those types of settings is untenable and soul-bending. And speaking for the small boy who still lives like the concentric rings of a tree's life inside of me. Every church service that boy attended, every altar call he answered, every Bible verse he memorized only aggravated his injuries of shame and estrangement. So I just tried to find peace. 38 years I've never told this story, and it's mine. It justifies no tearing. It justifies nothing. There are no excuses, but there are reasons. And mercy and grace digs through those reasons. So I just tried to find peace, or at least relief, some intermittent respite from the terrible and tormenting ideas about God and myself, ideas that were fundamental tenets of a message my authority figures affectionately called the good news. Ideas that had to do with the length of my hair, ideas that meant I could not play Little League Baseball because it was a worldly amusement, ideas that meant so many things. Ideas that were shared through seemingly innocuous Sunday school songs, flannel graphs, and puppet shows. Consequently, that longing for peace, for relief, led me to cobble together a way to survive the harsh impact of those horrifying ideas on my psyche. Somehow that little boy was able to find a small bucket of water to throw on the raging fire inside my little frame. The technical term for that kind of relief or tool is addiction. And true to an addiction's form, the water in my chosen bucket never even remotely quenched the dual flames of shame and estrangement, the flames burning out of control in my small heart and tender mind. At best... That pitiable small bucket of addiction did what addictions do. It provided just enough relief to justify and secure its continuing and devastating place in my life for many years to come. Not to disappoint, but my particular addiction wasn't to one of the more flashy or naked or notable culprits like alcohol or sex or gambling. It was, though, to something at least as insidious and something that you might see today if you knew how to look. As insidious as these, if only because it was so dangerously easy to mask and miss, my addiction was to approval, acceptance, applause, affirmation, approbation. In that little Puritan yard behind my home, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, there were no trees that grew those fruit. I reached for the one that was near. And that medium sized fish in a little pond learned how to perform. I learned how to run faster, jump higher, approval, acceptance, applause, affirmation, approbation, any other word, whether or not it begins with an A that means people like you or call you good. I was suffering so no drug could ever make me high. It could just arrest me, lift me up from the hole that I was in, maybe to some semblance of normalcy until the drug wore off. And so approval became my drug of choice. Accordingly, the people in my life unwittingly became my suppliers, and my performance became the currency with which I made my buys. With devastating innocence, I learned to freebase affirmation and mainline applause straight to my aching little soul. In fairness, as defenseless children, those addictive survival techniques were all many of us had access to. They were our friends. They kept us alive. In our feeble efforts to deal with the twin trauma of shame and estrangement, we truly did the best we could with what we had available. There's a reason I ended up fighting for queer people. Like children in a developing nation who are forced by the absence of clean water to drink contaminated forms of the same, we stayed alive but grew sicker day by day. The same water that hydrated us made us cruelly sick. The tandem sicknesses of shame and estrangement ended up being fed by the very methods we used to try to relieve them. In other words, we became addicted because we were ashamed, and we became more ashamed because of our addictions, and this vicious cycle ended up driving us even farther away into our pain and hiding in isolation. There was no way we as children could possibly have understood the danger of the fire we were playing with, the destructive complexity both physiologically and psychologically of addiction. We simply couldn't. Surely a significant part of our journey now is to offer grace to those children, those children we were, those children we even now still carry inside of us, those children who deserved heaven but lived in hell, children injured by fear-based religion, familial neglect, abuse, protracted bullying, unwanted isolation, you name it. Today we're talking about that which happened in Sunday school. There are many roads that lead to the same ends of shame and estrangement, but those children did not choose any of that it was unfairly imposed on their fragile lives, on our fragile lives. Their young parents whispered pobresita, being those small children just a few years before. Suffocating in a smothering shame or sense of not-enoughness, we simply wanted to feel good or, more realistically, not so bad about ourselves. Internally alone and alienated, we were so hungry for intimate connection, to see and to be seen, to hear and to be heard, to touch and be touched, that we were willing to pay almost any price, and when we did make those costly payments, often with our tender little bodies, God forbid anyone, especially the, the authority figures of church or home, those who had helped create the shame and estrangement, God forbid they found out what we did. Because if they did, the shame was only certain to grow and the estrangement to deepen. You create the burden, Jesus said, and when they collapse, you don't lift a finger to help them. As a result, we took on another characteristic of addiction. We learned to hide, for not only is addiction habitual in its character, it is also deceptive. Some of us learned the skill all too well, actually becoming so good at hiding that finally we couldn't even find ourselves. It is that loss, the loss of oneself that Jesus was referring to when he described people as truly lost. The prodigal did not come to God. The prodigal came to himself. God never left. And now for many of us, that soulless search and recovery mission is some of the most important work of our adult years, to go gently inward, to tread softly back into the innocent garden of our childhood, lovingly calling our own name. Softly and tenderly, we call out until finally our inner child is coaxed from its hiding place, clothed with fig leaves decaying, hoping against hope to be truly and safely loved. Surely this has something to do with what Jesus meant when he called us to become again as a little child. In recent years, I have learned for my sake that an indispensable part of my sobriety or recovery is a balanced mix of responsible self-awareness, self-compassion, and corrective action. Alas, childhood survival techniques, if not lovingly and honestly interrupted, become entrenched patterns. The wet cement that once could have been troweled over and smoothed out ultimately hardens until scarcely can a jackhammer break through it. Childhood survival techniques become habits. Habits become addictions. Addictions become lifestyles. Lifestyles become characters. And flawed characters threaten destinies. But there is hope. There is a way to interrupt and redirect that destructive cycle, there is a way for the church to go forward. There's truly healing for shame, estrangement, the damage done by the contaminated methods we once sought relief with. Like a small but powerful flower, there is a loving message of absolute union embedded deep in every soul. It is the gospel. It contains within it the capacity to do what neither trowel nor sledgehammer can. From beneath, from the inside, this little flower of truth can work its way through the concrete of childhood trauma The cellular memory of wounds, the layers of contamination and addiction, and the life-threatening scar tissue accrued through years of botched spiritual surgeries. This tiny flower, once it begins to grow, will not stop, but will little by little keep blooming until it becomes a verdant garden. I know because it's finally growing in me. While for sure I am not completely healed of shame's powerful impact, and I have traded the ball field... And the academic world for a pulpit where people told me I was good. Such an insidious dealer to weave its way into the craft, the calling of supposedly helping others, only to keep my own beating heart alive. I am not completely healed of shame's powerful impact, and while I make no claim to have fully lived this, I am daily living into its pages, its message, its meaning. I've come to a place where this wounded healer is maybe, just maybe healed enough to stand and say, I'm sorry for all the wounds I've created, and I am sorry for my wounds. I'm sorry... But I still believe in all this. And it'd be easier if I just say I've had affairs or run off with the secretary, but I never did that. those people enter the kingdom ahead of people like me but I do believe this now I'm just getting it to the rest of my body down to the cells and it'll probably take a lifetime I still wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning in cold sweats somewhere between a God that's going to burn me forever for taking up for queer kids And a dad that is somewhere kind of like God who says, I guess the word's just disappointment, son. I still wake up in cold sweats thinking, oh, my God, what if I'm wrong? Is Stan Jr. and Nina going to weep and gnash on me? And I shake myself. And I crawl into a Sunday morning like this full of flesh, blood, and galloping neurosis. Yet through all that, God reaches people. And we're still here and we're still alive, aren't we? And for all those that have had their wings torn too severely, that have flown without wings away from here and say they're never coming back to church, quit trying to fix them. Let them go, they'll take their own journey. It just might be that the prodigal journey away from the father's house is safer than the elder brother who stayed on the front row. Because in the far country, the kid realized he was a slave and said, I want to come home. But an elder brother looked down at the party and said, you've never thrown a party for me. Jesus wasn't talking to the publicans and harlots that day. He was talking to the most broken among us the Pharisees, and the religious leaders. And then with great grace, he looked at them and said, the publicans and harlots are going to enter heaven ahead of you. He didn't say instead. He looked at the Pharisees and said, you'll get there too. It'll just take you longer because this is the roughest addiction to get over. But you'll get there too.